Good morning, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Tell the person to your left, I'm glad you're here. Tell the person to your right, I'm glad we're not wet right now. Man, it's so good to be with y'all. My name's Derek. One of the teaching pastors here at Bayou City Fellowship, if you're a guest, uh, we welcome you. Uh, We know we have some first-time people here today, and so uh, we're just so honored that you took some time out of your weekend to spend with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 5. We're going to be primarily just in that text today, James chapter 5. We're going to continue the series in James. Uh, It's going to be concluded next week by Pastor Curtis, so make sure you don't miss it, the finale of James after going round for round with round of James, punching us in the face sometimes. Um, we're going to wrap up next week. Now, we've got to remember the context, though, of the book of James, the letter that James wrote. He wrote to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Literally, he was writing to a bunch of Jews that had followed Jesus, and now were Jesus followers, still Jewish descent, but Jesus followers. And because of the persecution, they have been spread out in the area, and so they're all scattered around the place. Now, remember, when James wrote this, there there are several key points, but the main point that James is making in this letter is he's saying, this is what it looks like to be spiritually mature, He wants the believers, the Jewish believers, and honestly, all the way down to us, he doesn't want us to be babies in the faith. He wants us to mature to adulthood in our faith, to grow in our relationship with the Lord, our love for the Lord, our trusting of the Lord. This is what James does by giving us pictures, by giving us exhortations, by calling us out, by, like I said, slugging us in the face sometimes to get our attention. Remember, he said, you adulterous people, you don't say that unless you want to get somebody's attention. And so today we're going to see that James continues to go in and say, this is what it looks like to be a mature believer in Christ. That's what it means for us today. So here's the main thought today. If you're taking notes, uh, you can write this down. Communion with God must be our primary response to life. Communion with God must be our primary response to life. Now, when I say communion with God, that, that means uh, it's a relational term, communion. That means I'm talking, I'm, I'm listening, I'm aware that there is a God and that he has uh, allowed me to come to be with him and that he is with me. I'm an awareness of him. And so the term communion is that I recognize I am with God and I don't just recognize that I live that out. And so I'm in communion, I'm in recognition that God is here, he's with me, his spirit is in me, and I'm living with that recognition, this dialogue going on, hearing, but the key point is I'm with God in the middle of any of life, the upper or the lower, the high or the valley, what James wants us to know is that the only thing that we should be doing in the midst of life, good and bad, is abiding, it's communion getting our attention up unto God. And we see this right out the gate in verse 13. We're gonna step through the scriptures a little bit at a time, so we're just gonna look at verse 13. It says this. Is anyone among you suffering? He says, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And so right out of the gate, James gives these two kind of endpoints. If you're suffering, if the world is coming against you, if man is trying to come against you, if your relationship tensions, whatever's going on, or if you are cheerful, which we all fall in somewhere in that spectrum, he's saying this is what you should do. Get your eyes off your circumstance and onto God. Because if your circumstances are really hard today, you're walking in like these guys who had their, 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 uh, some of their house flooded, suffering a little bit, hardship. Maybe you got some relational tension. What James says today is pray to God. Get your attention off of this 
on to God, be in communion with him. But today, if you walk in on a high, let's say you just got an amazing paycheck, you just had a baby, uh, you just uh, bought your first house, uh, things just haven't gone bad for 10 minutes, and, and you're like, yes, I'm cheerful. What James says is get your attention off of that and on to God. And honestly, that's probably the hardest thing we can do is when things are going really well, is to get our eyes off of ourselves and, and getting this pride of things like, I got this under control, I'm the man. And to get our eyes off of me and my situation and back to praise. You see, whether I'm praying or I'm praising, I'm communing with God. I'm aware of God and I'm interacting with him. So James says, whether I am praising on the peak or crying out pain in the pit, both situation, I should point to my communion with God. I should abide. I should be aware. I need to trust in him in both extremes and everything in the middle. But James also says something interesting. He says, let him pray. See, James first starts this out by saying that you need to have your own prayer life with the Lord. That if you're just dependent on Bayou City Fellowship for your prayer life, you're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus proclaimed in John 10. So we've got to have this relationship with the Lord, this prayer life of our own, because this word is singular. That means me and the Lord, and it's this part present tense. That means it's an ongoing Praying, it's not a pray once, check it off, I'm good. No, it's an ongoing prayer life, praise life, where I am communing with God. And so James goes from this situation where he says, if you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful, you go pray. But he takes away from this individual thing, and now he's going to set us up into, there should also be time in your life where you're coming to your brothers and sisters, and you're praying with them. You're asking them to pray for you. Look at verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So we see James, he moves from this independent individual prayer between you and God. And he says now, hey, there's gonna be times where we actually need to go to your brother and sister and pray. And so he says, you go to your elders. Now, now what is James talking about when he says Elders. No, I don't, I don't believe it was a specific title that somebody had to have, but an elder is somebody who is mature in the faith, someone who has walked with God, somebody who has a track record in their life of trusting God and obeying God. And so if you know a person like that, that would be a good person for you to go and ask them to pray for you when you're sick. He said, go to the elders. Now, the entire text today, the emphasis is, is on prayer. It says, go to the elders and have them pray with you. That's the primary piece. But specifically here, he says, also have them anoint you with oil. Now, now this uh, references um, oil, and, and this is seen throughout the Old and the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, it says that the disciples, they went out and they anointed with oil and prayed for many, and they were healed. Physical healing. And, and so we see this relationship in other places in the New Testament. You see uh, anointing with oil praying for healing, and then you see healing. And so what we can take from this one part of the scripture is that James is not speaking of hypothetical spiritual or spiritual type healing. He's actually talking about physical healing here. I think some people take this text and they say, no, God doesn't do that anymore, and so they just get into spiritual. I believe it is spiritual healing for salvation, definitely. But I believe this text, based on this specific thing where it says anoint with oil and that they would be healed, would say that we should be praying for those that are sick. And we should be expecting God to actually 
heal them in our presence. Now what's so interesting, he says the primary thing is, is pray, but then he says the secondary is healing, or is uh, anointing to be healed. Now remember, he's writing to a bunch of Jews who knew the Old Testament really, really well. They had lived it out, they had studied it, they had heard it. Now they were very keenly aware that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was symbolically talked about as the oil. So when anytime you see oil in the Old Testament, more times than not, it's speaking of the presence of the Holy Spirit that is with them. And so when they hear James say, go to your elders and pray and have them anoint you with oil, they immediately would have thought, Holy Spirit. And what that would have done is when they go to anoint someone with oil, it represents the Holy Spirit is here. That it's not me that heals, it's the presence of God. And so when I, when we as Bayou City, because we believe in anointing with oil, and we take the oil and we bless somebody with it and we pray over them, we're not saying that the oil has any magical ability. Like nothing, whether it's vegetable oil, Crisco, that would be nasty, or if it's frankincense and myrrh, like it doesn't matter what it's doing, is it's stirring our faith to recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who heals and he is with us. And so when you get anointed, it's just a recognition, okay, that's right, the Holy Spirit, he's here living around me and in me and he is the one that heals, not the person that's praying. And so it's symbolic and it's recognition that God heals, that the Spirit is with us. And we even see this in Jesus, right? It says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to go and heal the sick. So Jesus actually operated in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he healed the sick. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad we are part of a church that believes that God still heals physically. Amen? We believe at Bayou City that the same God that is here today was also here yesterday and also is going to be here forever. And so that God, he didn't stop healing at some point in history. We believe that he still does heal. And we've seen this consistently in uh, lots of different messages, or not messages, for sure, not messages, lots of different services. Uh, one, Paul, Paul was in here somewhere, first service, he, he was here a few months ago. We had some extended time of prayer. Paul had some major back pain going on for a prolonged period of time. It was keeping him from engaging with his grandchildren. It was actually keeping him from actually working out so that he could try to uh, scave off this other illness that was kind of coming against him. And so it was crippling him and really making him unhealthy. And so he stands up right back in this corner during our prayer time, and a few men come and pray for him, not pastors, not elders, but just men who love Jesus. They lay their hands on him. They begin to pray in faith. And what happens is this warm sensation goes from Paul's neck all the way down to his tailbone. He'd never experienced it before. He had heard people talk about it, but he had been walking with the Lord for a long time, yet never experienced it. But in this moment, the grace of God intersected his life, and he felt this warm sensation go down. And he knew that God was at work in his back. And after they were done praying, he was kind of moving around. He's like, man, I feel different. Like, I believe that God touched me. And, you know, he, he started moving around some more just because he didn't want a placebo effect, like just thinking maybe this is a mind game. And, but, but no, I sat down two or three weeks ago with Paul at a restaurant to have breakfast. And I said, Paul, how's your back doing? He said, it's completely healed. No problems ever since that day they prayed for me. Amen? And even this last week, I was up in Cyprus last week. I actually preached the same message. Curtis asked me to preach it again. Uh, we got an email on Monday. Uh, a husband and wife were at the service uh, uh, last Sunday up in Cyprus, and they said there was a, a family member or a friend of theirs who was in ministry in Tanzania, uh, just south of Kenya. Their, their kid, their little baby, had, had a fever, so they had taken the baby to Kenya, but there was no like, reason for the fever, and they were keeping the baby in the hospital, and they couldn't go back to where they were supposed to be serving. 
And so after the service, they said, man, our, our faith was stirred up. And so he and his wife, they gathered that night and prayed together. And the next morning, they get a text and say, hey, our baby's fever is broken. We don't know why, but we're flying back home, and we're going back to where God called us to minister. See, you, you can say what you want. Maybe it was happenstance. Maybe it was circumstance, whatever happened. But what we know is they weren't praying. They prayed, and the next day, they find out that God had healed this little baby. You see, we believe that God heals today just as he did when Jesus was walking, just like he did in the first century church. But that's not the reality for all of us, at least what we've all experienced, right? I mean, I, I prayed for people, and they didn't get well. And uh, I prayed for people that were sick, that they wouldn't die, and they went ahead and died. So, so what do we do about that? Well, the reality is, the hard reality that we live in is that every single person Jesus prayed for and that was healed, and even Lazarus, as he called him out of the tomb and brought him back to life, every one of those people eventually died. And so even if we pray on this earth and we see healing, we, we know the time period we live in that all of our lives, unless Jesus comes back before them, is going to end in death because we live in a time where the new earth and the new heavens have not been set up. There will be a day when Jesus comes back and he says there's not going to be any more tears there's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more leukemia. There's not going to be any more flus. There's going to be none of that. It's going to be completely restored just as I had created in Eden. It's going to be on the new earth, and there's not going to be any of that junk. But until that day comes, we're living under the fall of man. And so today, when we pray, not every single person is going to be healed, but some will be. See, we live in the time that some call the, it's the already but not yet. You see, when Jesus came to this earth over 2,000 years ago, he said that the kingdom of God is now here. It is present, and it's breaking into this world. And it did. And we began to see people get healed. We began to see the story of salvation played out even more. And we still see that. So that has already come, but it's not yet. You see, as I said earlier, the fruition, the complete story of Jesus' return, it's not here yet. And so we're still operating in this tension of, man, God's kingdom is breaking in right now all around us, yet sometimes we don't fully experience it. That's just the reality of the time in history that we live in, that it's already here, but it's not yet. That we will only experience the kingdom of God in part, not fully. But one of the ways that we do experience the kingdom of God is through physical healing. And, and I actually believe that it's one of the ways that is the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, it's actually answered here on this earth. See, Jesus taught us to pray that way, that the atmosphere of heaven, whatever's going on in heaven, would actually start infiltrating through his people and the kingdom of heaven would be gone to be experienced. And I believe one way we experience that is through physical healing. And so we pray for physical healing. James call, tells us if you are mature in your faith, you should be praying. You should also reach out for prayer. You see, healing is possible, but it's not guaranteed on this side of eternity. See, I want to pray for the sick with expectation that they will be healed, and then I got to trust God with the results. See, I think many of us, we're so scared to pray for somebody because we're like, what if God doesn't heal them? But if, that's, if you're thinking that, that you got to back up, maybe that's a little pride in you. Uh, if they're not healed, are you blaming yourself or are you going to ask them to talk to God about it? Because what I see in James is we should pray for the sick with faith, with hope, 
and we let God figure out what's going to happen. I don't want to be the person that's scared to pray for somebody and they're not healed because of my lack of faith. I'm going to just bring as much faith, little or big, that I have. I'm going to pray and I'm going to let God figure out the rest. See, that's what it looks like to pray with faith. We've got to be careful. We don't let our past experiences dictate our future prayers. And I think many of us, honestly, are sitting here today, we're in that place. We have been paralyzed by Satan with lies, 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 because in the past, maybe you prayed once or twice, nobody's been healed, and so you said, that's just not for me. But Jesus made it really clear that he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to heal the sick, and I'm going to send my disciples to go and heal the sick. And in the Great Commission, he actually says, those that believe in me are going to go around, and they're going to heal the sick. That's for every single person in here, not somebody with a special anointing of healing. If you're a disciple of Jesus... Part of your ministry is to allow the kingdom of God to come by praying for the sick and allowing God to heal them. See, we've got to come with expectation. We should be praying for the sick. Either we believe this or we don't. We either believe that the God of this book is real and active among us or we don't. And I think we can tell a lot from if we really believe this by how we pray or if we pray. And what James says, a mature believer, when they need prayer, they're going to seek out prayer from the elders. And if you are a mature believer, that you're going to be willing to step out in faith and pray for those that are sick. James shifts gears then in, in verse 15. So we've just set up prayer. He encourages us to pray. Pray for the sick. They will be healed. Anoint with oil. And then in verse 15, the second part, He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so he goes from prayer to confession, uh, which is a lot of fun if you're preaching, right? Um, Now, when I was a kid, uh, I've shared this a little bit. I I was um, a pretty tall kid when I was little. I was about a foot taller than everybody else when I was little. Uh, Not only was I taller this way, but I also happened to be a little wider than most kids. Um, does anybody else uh, have the pain of having to shop in the Husky section at JCPenney? Uh, raise your hand with pride. Yeah, there's a few guys. Yeah, D- Derek Prince. I can't believe that, but you're a Husky guy. That's great. Um, or, or does anybody remember uh, Bugle Boy or Arizona back in JCPenney Day? Yeah. So I'm still trying to recover my identity from that, uh, the Husky jeans. But, you know, I was a bigger kid. Uh, you know, one, one, one reason I'm never going to be a worship pastor is because not only can I not sing, I can't get in skinny jeans. Um, <laughs> totally. Total joke. Where's, where's Micah at? Micah doesn't rock the skinny jeans, so that's all right. Total joke. But I, I really can't because I can't wear skinny jeans. So, um, but I was, I was a bigger kid, and so I was better at sports than most kids just because I was bigger than other kids. And so I could just throw my weight around. You know, I had a killer drop set in basketball just because I was, had a bigger girth than other people. I could just bounce people around. And so, you know, at my little elementary school in small town Ohio, we had a, a blacktop um, basketball court, which is really smart. You know, it's really smart that blacktop where kids get tore up playing basketball. But we would play all kinds of sports. We'd play basketball and football and soccer and kickball. And around this was like a 15-foot um, fence all the way around our playground. And so that 15-foot fence helped us not kick the ball and throw the ball into the neighbor's yards, Okay. And so we would play kickball, and, and one day I was playing kickball, I got the ball, I set it down, and I take a few steps back, and, uh, you know, I'm wearing my Husky pants, and, and, um, and I take a few steps, and I just smoke the ball like Pele. I mean, it's just like, boom. It's got this arch on it. It's like flying. I mean, it's gorgeous. I'm like watching it. Um, what I didn't realize on the other side of that kick um, happened to be a teacher who was on recess duty. 
And, you know, she, was, uh, she had her uh, whistle that you have on recess. She was doing a little flick around where you kind of just roll, and she's, like, kind of strolling around, enjoying the day. And, uh, you know, heaven's timing is really uh, funny sometimes. Uh, that ball was kicked with such force, such velocity. And she's walking along, and all of a sudden, boom, smashes her in the face. And not only does it smash her in the face, she actually gets knocked over and is grabbing the side of the fence to keep her balance. Now, I got to tell you something about this teacher. She will go uh, nameless because I don't want her hunting me down. She was a very intense teacher. She was the kind of teacher when you had the desk where you actually stored things underneath it. If she found out that that desk wasn't clean enough, she would actually take the desk in front of the whole class, tip it upside down, shake it out, put it back down and say, please clean up your desk. I mean, that's the intensity that this little lady had. Uh, love her, but she was intense. And so anyhow, she's clinging on for life after she got hit with this ball. And she turns around. She says, who did that? The playground is completely silent. Nobody is moving. Complete, it's not moving. And so in that moment, I had to make a decision. Was I going to kind of drop the mic and walk away? But I know if I did that, that she would know that it was me because nobody else was moving, right? Or was I going to point and say, it was Scott, it was, it was Scott, it was him, it wasn't me, but, but everybody else knew that it was me, and so they would have pointed back to me. But in that moment, she's all the way at the other end of the court, <laughs> all these kids saying, what's Derek going to do? I raise my hand, and I say, it was me, and I walk towards her. I confessed that it was me. She says, get on the wall. Anybody else remember the brick wall at the playground? <laughs> I go to the wall, and I'm sitting there patiently, and finally she makes her way over there, and she comes down to me. I remember she had half a red face, half a white face. <laughs> and she says, Derek, that was not good. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I- I'm going to take away all sports balls for you for the next two weeks. And I thought my life was over. <laughs> two weeks of not playing with balls. Terrible. And so we go on the day I had to go to the principal's office. They called my mom. And, you know, the next day, you know, my mom, she was so um, considered about my future. Uh, she sent me with a massive bouquet of flowers the next day for my teacher, which is really humbling for a little elementary boy to go in and give your teacher um, a bouquet and say, I'm sorry that I kicked you in the face with my ball. Like, really <laughs> humbling. But thankfully, my mom cared enough about my future college that, that bought some grace with my teacher, and I got through the class with an S+. Plus. Remember that? <laughs> S+. Plus. That's good. Good old days. But see, in that moment, I confessed. This is what confession is. It is telling the truth. Don't make it something more than it isn't. Confession, it's telling the truth. It is truth-telling. It's saying, this is how I feel. This is what I believe. This is what I've done. It's telling The truth, that's what confession is. And so James says that confession is tied to prayer, which is also tied to healing. And so we should take a step back and say, man, what can I learn about confession today if it's so important? So there's three things I want you to write down if you're taking notes. Number one, confession requires trust. Confession requires trust. You see, if if I'm going to obey James and I'm going to walk in confession, then I've got to go to God with my confession. I've got to trust that God is not going to strike me dead with lightning when I go to him. First step of faith. When I go to God, I also have to have this trust and faith that he actually will receive me to hear from me. 
I've also got to believe that, that he will give grace and forgiveness to those that confess their sins with honesty to him. You see, it requires a ton of trust if I'm going to confess my sin, to be really honest with God. It requires trust. But also, James says, go to your brother and confess your sins. Now, if I'm going to go to Scott and confess some sin, then I've got to trust Scott. I've got to trust that Scott, when I tell him, and he's looking at my eyes, when I say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, Scott, that when I tell him, his eyes aren't going to dart away and he's going to judge me. And he's not going to condemn me. I've got to trust that Scott is going to hear me and he's going to speak life back into me. I've got to trust that Scott is not going to put my name on a prayer request sheet. Gossip. Sometimes. See, see, I've got to trust Scott if I'm going to go and confess. And so if we're going to live this out, what James is saying, if you're going to confess to somebody else, you've got to be wise in who you're confessing to. It better be someone who has a track record of loving God and loving other people. They can be trusted. And so I got to flip the coin a little bit. Are you living a life where somebody would be confident and trust you enough for them to tell you their confession? See, it goes both ways. For somebody to confess, they've got to have somebody on their side to receive it. And so have you considered, are you the kind of person that somebody would trust enough to be a place where they can confess their sins? And what I know about my own experience, the best person to go to confess to is somebody who is very understanding of their own sin in their life. Somebody who hasn't gotten so holy that they forget that they've been saved by grace, not by their actions. Somebody who recognizes that, man, they are just as jacked up as me, and yet we are still going in the same direction to a king who says, we are holy. See, that's the kind of person I want to confess to, is somebody who recognizes that they're not better than me, they're just on this journey with me. So is that a a way of describing your life? Do you even desire to live that kind of life? James would say you should. You should. Number two thing about confession is it requires humility. Confession at its core is admitting personal wrong. It's taking ownership for sin. What's hard, though, is we live in a world that says don't show your weakness. Don't let anybody know you're struggling because it's going to impact your career. It's going to impact how people view you. So do not show Weakness, don't let anybody smell blood because they're gonna come and they're attack. And we hear this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We hear the world tell us, and then we show up Sunday, which should be a place that's safe. Yet what happens sometimes in churches, we get a little off kilter and our church becomes a place for saints versus a place for sinners. You know, I, I, I honestly don't think as I step back as a pastor and observe, which that's one of my jobs to do is observe, what's God doing What's God doing in our church? What's God doing in individuals' lives? I I don't believe that Bayou City is a church where there's not authenticity. I believe that many of you actually come here because you believe this is the most authentic thing you've ever experienced as a church, right? Is somebody amen to that? But but here's the thing, Bayou City Fellowship, that we are one degree, like every other church, from stepping into being a place for saints where sinners don't feel welcome. You see, when we begin to project perfection rather than embrace grace, we actually hinder the atmosphere of confession. I want you to think about you personally and so take the Bayou City big picture away to go to you individually. Listen, if you're a person who is all about uh, image management and you project something that's better than actual, 
I get that. That's why we have social media. You know, that's what we do. We highlight reels. We just show the best of life. But if you're like that around all of your friends and nobody knows anything different, this is what you're potentially doing. You're potentially keeping somebody else in bondage to their sin because they're afraid to confess because they don't think anybody else has a problem. And so the next time that you want to project perfection, the next time you don't want to be real in your community group, when somebody asks if you need prayer requests, the next time somebody asks, hey, how are you doing today? And you give them the nod and say, I'm great. You are potentially keeping somebody else in bondage to their own sin because they don't think anybody else is jacked up like they are. We've got to be careful how we project. But you see this humility that we see that's required to confess what I love about James is he says there's something in store for those that are humble. Remember back in James chapter four, verse six, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You're so humble, you don't even want to say the answer. <laughs> he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so if humility is required to confess What we actually see is when I confess my sin to a brother or to God, what I'm doing is I'm actually humbling myself and I'm actually positioning myself to receive more grace than I've experienced in the past. So if you say, I want to taste grace more than I ever have, then you need to consider, are you confessing? Is your lifestyle that of confession to God where you recognize that he's the one that pours out grace to those that humble themselves? If you want to experience grace today, maybe you should consider confessing to God. The truth, truth telling. The third thing that I've got on confession, this is the final thing on confession, is that confession breaks strongholds. Confession breaks strongholds. Now, a stronghold is any area of your life where you are believing a lie about God or believing a lie about yourself. And in that lie, Satan has made this fortress where you've kind of tucked it away and now he has a path to get in and out of your life where he can kill, steal, and destroy even a believer. And so strongholds are a place where he can attack, and he wants that to be there. And what strongholds do is they seek isolation and they seek darkness. Satan doesn't want anybody knowing about your stronghold. He doesn't want anybody knowing the real Derek Prince. He doesn't want anybody knowing the Scott Black. He doesn't want, he wants that to be hidden from everyone so he can keep you there. So you can feel good all the time, but then that cycle rolls around and you fall back into sin. That's a stronghold. And if you say, I, I don't know if I've got a stronghold in my life, let me ask you a few questions that you could honestly answer, at least in your head right now. Do I have anything in my life I am attempting to hide from God? That would mean you probably have a stronghold in that area. Do I feel like there's anything in my life that I am out of control? Meaning that there's no hope. That's a better way to put it. Is there any area of your life where you have no Hope, that would likely be a stronghold. And I heard a pastor recently say, if there's any area of your life where you have no hope, you're likely believing a lie. Because we serve a God of hope. And there's no hopeless situation when it comes to knowing God. And so we gotta say, is there a stronghold? Is there something there that we're allowing to be there, that we're hiding from everybody else, that it's allowing Satan to kill, steal, and destroy? Uh, This guy named Augustine of Hippo, he says this, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. I'll read that again because that's, that's deep. The confession of evil works, confession, is the first beginning of good works. See, the way confession uh, breaks stronghold is that confession actually speaks out the truth. And when this truth is spoken, it allows their room for God to speak back in the real truth. 
It actually breaks and short circuits that sin cycle that we get into sometimes where I sin and I feel bad about it. And so I work harder and I put a filter on my computer and I try not to be around the wrong people. And then I go in and then I sin again and then I feel bad about it. And then I do the same cycle again. Does anybody else know that cycle of sin? Or am I the only one that's been there? See, what happens is when I confess the truth, I allow the light of God to come in, which scatters darkness. And so when I confess, I actually am breaking the sin cycle right where it needs broken. Confession actually punches a stronghold in the face because it lets light in and it lets hope in. But here is the truth. Confession doesn't end at confession. Confession must end at forgiveness. You see, if confession just ends at confession, then we're going to walk around shameful and guilty, and we're going to feel bad about ourselves, and we're not going to be any joy and any hope in this world. But the beautiful thing about confession, when it's to God, is we give him room to speak truth. And so I receive his truth. I receive that I'm forgiven, and then I can walk in that, and that's where health comes from. And that's where strongholds are broken, when I receive forgiveness. And this is what I've experienced time and time again in my life. When I was struggling with my addictions, when I was living this lifestyle where I had this stronghold, yet I was projecting perfection, the problem was nobody else knew in the world about my junk except me and God. But the moment that I had a friend come alongside of me and ask me some good questions, and I spoke it out, and I confessed that was broken in the name of Jesus. And that gave me room to say, okay, I'm going to receive truth that I am forgiven, and I'm going to work, I'm going to live this out because now I know the truth, and now I'm not living in shame or guilt. See, if you're struggling with sin today, what James would say, have you confessed to God and have you confessed to a brother? And as you confess, are you then filling that confession with the truth of God, whether that's through his word, whether that's through prayer, or whether that's through another brother or sister in Christ who's speaking life into you? We should never just confess without seeking truth. The double-edged sword. So confession, James would say, is part of every believer's life, that we should consider it when we are sick, that it may mean, be the means to which God brings healing. Not 100% of the time. So if you're sick today, confession is not the silver bullet. But it, James would say you should at least consider, is it part of what God wants to do to restore you? The last thing that James leaves us with today is some encouragement. Look at the second part of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so James gives us, real quick, two encouragements for us to leave today. Number one, he says the righteous person has great power in their prayer. Now, there's another translation that I want to show you from the New King James Version, which I think gives a little bit more clarity to this verse, the second part. It says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, now it's important we know, it's really important to know what is the righteous man. That's somebody who trusts in God for their salvation. Somebody who's been forgiven by faith, someone who is looking to God, somebody who is walking in truth, somebody who has a lifestyle of confession, not a perfect man, but a man who trusts in God alone. That's a righteous man. And so all of us have the ability to be a righteous man based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We all can be, and so that's the encouragement. And he says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, so there's much power. Now, this prayer, as I was studying, is not just any other prayer. 
This prayer is a prayer that is birthed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's got to be that way. And then it's energized and brought to fruition by the Holy Spirit. So it's not like I've got a need or I've got a desire, so I'm going to pray about it. No, this specific prayer is birthed from the Spirit and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of prayers we see Jesus pray all the time. Jesus batted 1,000 when it came to prayers. Have you ever asked why? You see, Jesus made it really clear. He said, I only say what the Father's doing, I only saying. And I only do what the Father's doing. See, Jesus was so in tune with the Spirit that whatever he spoke, God was already doing. And so it was this kind of prayer that has power that when Jesus prayed it, of course, it's the will of God. This kind of prayer, it's going to happen. And we know that James says that we should be able to pray this way. And if we are going to pray this way, it forces us to lean on the Spirit of God at all times. We must stay connected to God through his Spirit to ask him, how should I pray about this situation? How, how would you want me to pray for this person and not just jump into it with lots of words, but say, God, what are you doing in this situation? How can I pray for this person? What are you doing? Because I want to join you. See, this is what we should desire, to walk so in step with the Spirit of God that we see God move powerfully, that our answered prayers actually become the norm versus the exception. And the encouragement to all of us is, is that We all can be that righteous person. You've been made righteous by Christ. The only other thing it says that you've got to be aware of the Spirit and and then obey him when he speaks. That we can see the power of God in our life when we are living in awareness and obedience to the Holy Spirit just as Jesus was. Number one encouragement. Number two as we close here. He says Elijah. Elijah was a beast. He says Elijah had a nature just like ours. Just pause and think about that for one second. Elijah had a nature just like yours. He was born a sinner. He had moments of faith and he had moments of doubt. He had a nature like you. And so what gets me excited as a follower of Jesus is that everything that Elijah did is now on the table. If God can use Elijah, he can use me. And God used Elijah to do some amazing things. Let me just give you a real quick recap of his life. We see here in James that he said that he prayed that there would be a drought and the rain stopped for three and a half years. Is that a powerful prayer? Is that a powerful prayer? And then we know that this drought came and and God said, go to this stream. And at this stream, I'm going to feed you and I'm going to provide for you. And we know that in the morning and the evening, God sent ravens, not the football team, but the birds, to go feed Elijah bread and meat provided by God. And then God sends him to a woman who had a son and God provides for Elijah through this woman supernatural provision. And then this woman's son dies. This little boy dies. So she calls Elijah and says, Elijah, you're a man of God. Will you do something? Elijah goes upstairs to this little boy and he prays for this little boy and nothing happened. So he prays again. Father, let this boy live. Nothing happened. You know, sometimes I think, what if Elijah would have stopped after the second prayer? What what if he wouldn't have prayed the third time? But we know Elijah, he prayed the third time. He says, Father, bring life back to this boy the third time. And it says that the life came back to this boy and he was raised from the dead. A little bit after that, God sends him go back to the king, King Ahab. 
And he told the king, hey, go grab all your prophets of Baal and join me up on Mount Carmel, and we're going to see whose God is the real God. And so the, the uh, prophets of Baal, they gathered up together, and they had the oxen, and they put it on the altar, and they began to ask for their gods to burn up the offering. But we know that idols don't respond, right? And so they didn't respond. It says that they began to cut themselves with knife to bleed, to try to get their God to respond in some way, yet their God didn't respond at all, and so nothing happened. And then Abraham says, hey, go get 12 jars of water as my offering is here. Pour it on top of my offering, saturate it with water, make it so damp, let there be water flowing all the way around it. And then he said, God, let your fire come from heaven. And it says the heavens sent fire down, consumed the offering completely, and all of the water was vaporized into steam and nothing was left. And in that moment, all the people that were there recognized that Elijah's God was the true God. It's amazing faith. Now listen, it keeps getting better. The next day, Elijah goes up and he begins to pray for rain, the opposite of what we've been praying for. He begins to pray for rain, and he sends his little servant up the hill to look out over the sea, and he says, are there any clouds there? The servant goes up the first time. He sees there's no clouds. He comes back down and says, Elijah, there's no clouds. He prays once. He sends him back up again. He prays a second time, comes back down. Elijah, there's no clouds. Listen, Elijah, a man of faith, prayed seven times. It's a challenge for our generation. We want once and done. God, give it to me. If you didn't get it, then I'm just going to go and move on. No, he prayed seven times. The seventh time he sent his servant back up the hill and he says, I see a cloud. It looks like a man's hand. And Elijah knew that God was faithful. Now, amazing life that Elijah lives, but right after that, this uh, amazing woman, this beast of a woman named Jezebel, she sends a message and says, hey, Elijah, I'm going to have your body by this time tomorrow. And what happens to this man of faith, he gets his eyes off of God and onto his circumstance and he gets scared. He forgets all that God had done, and he runs like a little boy away to find a cave. Yet God is still with him. And what's interesting to me is in that cave, you can go read the story, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. God actually leads him to a place of confession in the cave. He says, Elijah, why are you running? You see, he's getting him to a place where he'll speak the truth. And Elijah says, I was scared that they would kill me. They killed everybody else. They're going to kill me. And out of that truth, he leaves room for God to speak. And so then God speaks to him and gives him the marching orders for what's next. You see, Elijah was a man just like you and me. He's got a nature like you and me. And James wants to encourage us today to trust in God and not in themselves. He wanted to challenge his readers to depend upon God, to know how and when to pray just as Elijah did. You see, the power and the effectiveness of Elijah's prayers didn't come from Elijah. It came solely from the God who Elijah depended on and prayed to. It's not about the man who prays. It's about the God to whom the man prays to. This is what James encourages, that Elijah's God, he is our God. And because of that, everything's on the table. See, we can conclude that the mature in faith follow Jesus, prioritizing communion with God regardless of what life throws at them. The peak or the pit, the praise or the pain, the doubt or the faith, call out to God of Elijah. Call out to the God of Paul. Call out to the God of James. Call out to your God who is with us today in this 
room, no matter what you are dealing with today, what your needs are, what your fears are, what your doubts are, the best response is to commune with God. Because his promise is, I am with you. Those that draw near to me, I will draw near to them. So wherever you're at today, the best response you can have to life is to call out to God in praise, at the peak, or pain, in the pit. Today we're gonna end uh, maybe just a little differently than we do normally. Um, I wanna have a little time of applied theology because that's the whole point of theology is to apply it, not to know it. Amen. And so what I want us to do today is we're gonna live out James right now, what James has exhorted the church to do. We're gonna pray for those that are suffering, uh, no matter what you're suffering, financial, job loss, relational stress, physical things happen to your house, whatever that is, we wanna pray for you today. But also we wanna fill out, we wanna follow what James says is that the elders should pray for the sick and anoint them with oil. And so we're gonna have two elders on each side of uh, the stage. If elders, if you can go ahead and pop up, we'll make sure we get two on each side. We've got oil down here. Now remember the oil is no hocus pocus, it's a remembrance that the Holy Spirit's the one that heals. So when you're anointed with oil, you just remember that God is here and he is the one that's able to heal. And so if you have any brokenness in your body whatsoever, we wanna invite you to come and to be prayed for, to be anointed with oil as we ask for the grace of God to intersect your life in healing. And while we're doing that, we're also gonna have the normal prayer team up front. And if you're suffering through anything at all today, if you've got questions about God, if you just need to be encouraged, if you just wanna speak out truth and have somebody speak truth back into you, you come forward. So go ahead and stand and let me pray for you. Healing, both sides, be anointed by our elders and be prayed for. Anyone suffering, uh, prayer team, would you come forward down here? Raise your hand up as you come forward so everybody can see you. Plenty of people to pray, guys. Lord, I thank you that you gave us James' words to encourage us, to exhort us, to point us to commune with you in the great things of life and in the rough things of life. And I know there's so much represented here today, but Lord, you know each and every one of us that where there's pain, you feel that pain. Where there's joy, you're there celebrating with them. And so, Lord, I ask as we have this time where we just come before you and say, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven, that you would come, Lord, that you would teach, that you would heal, that you would set free even those that are battling depression today, Lord. Bring hope. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do what you do best. Point us to Jesus. Amen.